This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. And let's get more on trade, because clearly it's been very much on the mind of investors. Sarah McGregor joins us from our Bloomberg 99.1 studio down in Washington, D.C. She is U.S. economic policy team leader, been following the trade. She and her team talks very closely. Sarah, great to have you with us. So bring us up to date. Obviously, these are two world leaders who are talking a lot about trade between themselves, but China very much front of mind. What's the latest? Absolutely. So we um, we reported today, we talked to some sources, and they're telling us that China's pushing back on some of these U.S. demands in, in trade talks. And a lot of it comes to the core of U.S. grievances, which is these intellectual property theft allegations that the U.S. Um, has leveled at China and, and is really trying to address through a trade deal. So our, our sources say China's sort of stepped back from some initial promises, and a lot of the motivation for that is that China's not getting the assurances it wants from the Trump administration that tariffs are going to be removed in, in a final deal. So, Sarah, I feel like it's coming out just like the playbook would say it would, that China would back off of this, right, when it starts to get very serious. And these issues, especially when it comes to intellectual property, technology, we've been talking about this with China, various administrations with China, Democratic and Republican, about these issues for some time. So should we, I mean, should we be surprised? Isn't this kind of going um, as we've seen negotiations in the past go as well? Absolutely. I mean, I think that, you know, the idea that China is not going to fall at the feet of the Trump administration and give in to a whole load of issues that it's never, um, you know, it's never wanted to in the past. We, we can't really think that's a, a possibility and really what has just been sort of a few short months of really accelerated talks right now. So, um, you know, it's it's hard to tell in these trade negotiations how serious each side is with sort of their their demand list and where their red lines ultimately are. But what is pretty clear is, you know, our sources are saying Beijing is trying to get in some wording into this agreement so that everything has to comply with Chinese laws, which, you know, you could imagine would make a lot of sense that it really wants to maintain its sovereignty. It wants to make sure that if it signs on to a deal and the Trump administration demands that there's an enforcement mechanism, a way that, um, you know, the, the, mm-hmm. the U.S. can ensure that China is living up to its promises, China doesn't want to give up its ability to set its own policy. And, and set its own agenda. So, you know, I think there it's going to be very difficult to come to an agreement. And today's hint that, that China's pushing back is just an indication of that. And Sarah, what, what's the sense you get from inside the U.S. administration? Because you and your team have done a really nice job of sort of elucidating some of the inner workings and, and maybe uh, pointing out that not everyone within the Trump administration is on the same page here. Is everybody still together on the same page? What do you hear? Sure, yes. I think, you know, Robert Lighthizer, the U.S. Trade Representative, he's in the driver's seat right now in terms of, you know, guiding these talks. And he's a China hawk. I mean, he is dead serious about making sure that China addresses some of these IP theft issues, forced technology transfers. Lighthizer has been, um, you know, an advocate for this this kind of thing for decades. So he's certainly not going to change his views right now. 
Um, he's jointly going, according to the Wall Street Journal, with Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin next week to Beijing to try and advance these talks. Chinese Vice Premier Liu He is supposed to be in Washington the week after that. So I think more than ever, we, we're hearing more of a um, U.S. officials singing from the same hymn book sort mm-hmm. of vibe uh, in terms of getting a deal done. But of course, I think as they reach these final stages, there's going to be a few issues, and it's going to it might be the Hawks versus the um, more sort of uh, market-minded folks like Steven Mnuchin who will be um, really at odds over some of the final details and where they should draw the line. Sarah, where's the support from U.S. allies? I mean, the intellectual property, technology, I mean, this isn't just a U.S. issue. This is a global issue. So I'm just curious, where are our U.S. allies when it comes to this, especially when it comes to trade? The U.S. right now is in an alliance with the European Union and Japan to try and address some of these issues. Like you said, this the previous U.S. administrations have complained about it. Other countries also don't like it. I think other nations are, are more um, in the line that they should all work on this together and sort of not necessarily gang up with China, but work in a more cooperative way to, mm-hmm. to move the ball forward and perhaps through the WTO system as well. Um, you know, the, the go-it-alone approach for, for the U.S. has been seen as pretty heavy-handed. So I think, um, you know, I think a lot of people, though, are waiting to see if the Trump administration actually can ring out some of these changes that they've all wanted to see. So, um, and, and that includes U.S. companies. Right. And it's one of the areas where the president really has bipartisan support when it comes to Washington. Um, Sarah, great reporting as always. And thanks for getting us up to speed on this, which is a continuously uh, moving and evolving story. Sarah McGregor is U.S. economic policy team leader at Bloomberg News in our 991 studio in the nation's capital. And, you know, Jason, we know a big part of this, too, is the president wants a political win. Right. Uh, we keep thinking about the 2020 elections. And there's been that long list he went in, you know, talked about on the campaign trail. And he's looking to tick them off. Uh, and so that's certainly back of mind for him or front of mind. Indeed. All right. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. I'm going home. And when I want to go home, I'm going mobile. Yes, indeed. The entire world going increasingly mobile. Um, we hear a lot, too, about the building of smart cities. Mobility is key to that. Someone who is involved in all of that world is David Roberts back with us. He's the CEO at Vera Mobility. It's a company that designs and develops mobility software based in Mesa, Arizona, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. And you just reported earnings. <laughs> I'm like, why are you in town? You're like, well, we reported earnings. Um, stock is down on there. Uh, I, I just want to just address that because you reported after the close mm-hmm. uh, last night. Stock's down about 3.4%. Investors uh, a little bit disappointed. What kind of clarity might you provide? about the past quarter and the outlook. Yeah, I think, uh, first of all, thanks for having me back. Yeah, of course. Um, When you look at the fact that we were newly public in October of last year and we went through a SPAC process to be public, um, there was still some hangover effects of that process that need to be counted up for in our accounting in Q4. So there were some adjustments that made to Q4 that were one time not readily apparent to investors, but the punchline of the entire story is we grew revenue 11.5%. We grew EBITDA 19.5%, which is both over our adjusted guidance that we did the time of the launch. So we had a great year and are on course to have a really good year this and year. And the outlook? The outlook is very, very positive. We, similar numbers? Uh, we anticipate probably you know 8 to 10% top line growth and similar on the bottom line. So we're going to continue to march along. So help us understand how we would interact with your technology, because what you have worked on 
feels like things that we're all interacting with on a on a daily basis and uh as someone who recently got a uh, parking ticket in my little yeah. town, I had to stand and watch the officer, you know, fill it out, rip it off, hand me a form. But I was able to pay the ticket online, so I guess that's progress to that's some great. extent. But you guys are working on all of this from a mobile perspective. How hard is it, especially because you're dealing with municipalities, mm-hmm. states, and, and governments who might not always be the most forward-thinking when it comes to technology? Yeah, there's, a, I mean, there's really a mix, as you think, about the concept of smart cities and, and cities like New York. York has really taken a leading edge as they think about how do we use technology to make traffic safer, uh, easier, less congested, and what's the portfolio of solutions that we can offer. Uh, so how uh, a, you know a regular driver around New York might know us is from photo enforcement. So yes. we're, we provide speed cameras around New York City, which has really embraced that a part of their Vision Zero program, which is zero fatalities related to or zero pedestrian deaths related to car fatalities. Um, so it's something that we've seen a lot of uptick. And, and New York, in that way, has really sort of led the cause. It started in Europe, came to New York, and now it's spreading across the country where people are realizing, despite all the great concepts of the newer autonomous driving and connected vehicles, there are still a lot of things that are happening and people are getting hurt. And how do we increase safety? And in particular, as we think about school zones and school children, let's leverage technology to provide the best experience for them. And is that the biggest part of your business in terms of the cameras and so on and so forth? Uh, it's not, actually. So the biggest part of our business is our commercial business, which revolves around uh, tolling and violation management. So we work with rental car companies, fleet management companies, just mm-hmm. large captive fleets to help them access cashless tolls through different portfolio programs. We help them with their violations. So when they get parking tickets, how do you process that? We also do title and registration to make sure they have the right title and the tag in the car. So some behind-the-scenes work there, but still smart tech. What's funny is, right, we talk about smart cities. I mean, forgive me, and don't take this in the wrong way, but a lot of what you're working on, and I feel like a lot of smart cities, is just taking some really mundane tasks and just throwing some technology at it to kind of make it more transparent, simple, simpler. Absolutely. And by the way, we love that because we (laughs) recognize the fact that, hey, there's going to be a world of autonomous cars and all those things are coming. But in the meantime, cities and fleets have challenges that need to be solved. And we can use smart technology to solve some of these problems that doesn't have to be an autonomous car. It can be a simple software solution or an integration or a connected, uh, connected mobile solution. Well, it's interesting, too, when we think about all the aspects of this, including payment. And I know your background, actually, you work for an electronic payments company. Yeah. I believe you ran an electronic payments company. You are a banker. So you sort of understand this whole uh, ethos. Are, are we at this sort of tipping point where all the technology is finally going to be connected? Because I feel like we've been waiting for this for, for some time. I Only think there's going to be 40 seconds for you to answer yeah, this Yeah, I think there's going to be – I think what you're going to see is consumer apps will probably – uh, be in front of, not surprisingly, uh, state and local government's ability to adopt. So apps that you can use for parking and payment of mobile-related services will far outpace the ability to use them interconnected with cities just because of they have a lot of other problems that they in, they need to put tires on police cars, yeah. right? They, yeah. they need to put – there's a lot of other things they have to invest in. Well, and I just think about the emerging market world or even China or something where everything is done – through your phone, like we're playing catch up to some extent here in the United States. Um, David, nice to check back with yeah, you. Thanks D- for having David me. David Roberts, he's CEO of Advera Mobility, based in Mesa, Arizona, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio on this Tuesday. So, Jason, we have a couple stories on education today, and here's the first one. Rebecca Cantor, she's a 27-year-old entrepreneur. She dropped out of Harvard after about two years, founded the startup Embellus, and it aims to reinvent standardized testing. Her story in this week's magazine hitting newsstands later this week on the Bloomberg and at Bloomberg.com. We caught up with her earlier. Listen up. 
So you're thinking about all of this and you create a company called Embellus. Tell us about this company and what you're setting out to do. So I identified this line of code of college admissions as being very pivotal, not only in determining who gets access to what, but also in determining what schools teach. And my thought was not so idealist to say, if I change out the standards, suddenly all schools are going to teach better. They're not. It's not a silver bullet. I thought about instead, how do these standardized tests act as a linchpin? How do they hold our schools back? And the determination I made after years of meeting people and reading about various aspects of this kind of high stakes testing was until you could cut through this layer of content mastery of knowing biology or knowing Mm -hmm. history or knowing chemistry as always being the proxy for assessing skills like problem solving or critical thinking or decision making, you are always going to disadvantage poor schools and advantage rich ones. Because rich schools have the privilege of having kids come in who read at grade level, who do math at grade level, who have parents at home helping with flashcards at night. Mastering content and dealing with huge amounts of information they're exposed to is a winning solution for kids who, by and large, for kids who grow up in privileged environment. For poor schools, you know, they're dealt a much needier hand in terms of the, the kids coming Mm-hmm. in and their reading level, their English language familiarity, for example. So reconciling that plus a textbook of biology they're supposed to plow through for AP Bio is very tough. So I was interested in saying, could we free up a little bit of the pressure that these schools feel? Not get rid of content. It's hard mm-hmm. to think critically about nothing, right? So you need content. But could we relieve a little pressure to allow for schools to customize what they're teaching, the pedagogies they're using, so that everything students are learning is a little bit more interesting, a little bit more relevant, a little bit more appropriate for one population versus another? And the challenge of building a test like that is you've got to have a test that's generalizable. It right. can't be like, did you learn this information? Right. You want to have some of that. I want you to be able to read. I want you to be able to do some math in my tests. But I want you to really show me that you can think, that you can reason through a situation, that you can develop a a new and novel perspective. Like put things together and figure things out. What we do at work. How do you do a test, though, that figures that out? It's very hard. So I had come across some really nice research that actually ETS had done with... Educational testing service. Yeah, the Educational Testing Service had done with an organization called Glass Lab out of EA Mm -hmm. Games. There was a collaboration between several education companies. Electronic Arts. Exactly, and Electronic Arts, working on a educational version of SimCity. You might remember that Mm -hmm. game, The Sims, where you're building little villages. And I was really interested in this idea that that game had been used to look at systems thinking. This was the first time someone had tried, at least that I'd seen, building a a test that would be used in a state standards in California, for example, was the intention at the time. And that cut across not just math or science or chemistry, but this idea of systems thinking as a generalizable skill, as a tool that you could have in your toolbox and you You might point it at chemistry, you might point it at math, you might point it at work. And that's what I wanted to bring to life. And it's very hard. I mean, developing this kind of assessment is like developing new drugs, except you don't know all the (laughs) compounds you're starting with. You're like going out in the wild and in our case, trying to find corporations who are interested in letting you study, hey, what does creativity look like for your employees? What does problem solving look like? Can we bring that real life definition, that living, breathing manifestation of what work is like today back to the educational context so that our kids aren't learning something, you know, esoterically schemed up by a bunch of professors, but are learning from what's actually happening. Because the other side of that is people getting all these great education, spending a lot of money, having a lot of debt. I mean, some people don't, right, have debt, but there are a lot of folks who do come out of... Most do. Right? And then 
they don't necessarily have the skills they need to enter the workforce. Yeah, because I think the story that people are often afraid to tell is nine times out of the ten, the kid who went to Cornell or Dartmouth or Duke is going to beat the kid who went to a random community college or mm. state school in a you know side-by-side applying for a job type of context. So you're dealing with a system whereby there are a lot of to say the least, entrenched interest on the corporate Mm -hmm. side, uh, which you started talking about a little bit, but especially, and I feel like this has come even more to the fore in the last couple of weeks in higher education, you know, where there's a system that people are gaming. Are you seeing any (laughs) elements of people starting to change their mind at all? Yeah, it's a really apt question. I'd say first and foremost, There are some entrenched interests and some inertia in the system that's really reasonable and that's there for good reason. You don't want just anyone to come in and wipe out tests that have been validated and have been relied upon for decades as a fair assessment of merit. It doesn't mean that everyone agrees, but that is certainly how they've been used. And so you do want the bar to enter this new this new testing arena if we are going to see new tests come into the arena to be high. That said, there are some problems that standardized testing has most recently been lambasted for, particularly in the light of this college admission scandal, that technology can help solve. Mm-hmm. And in my mind, it's kind of unexcusable that it's not at least being attempted mm-hmm. by the major testing codes to use that technology to, you know, whether it's removing proctors or whether it's authenticating that you are indeed who you are. Part of the problem is these tests are still largely paper-based. And even if they're not, they're making it onto an iPad where multiple choice questions right. are digitally loaded. And, you know, how hard is it for two kids to scheme up in a room, hey, I'm going to distract the proctor while you steal the iPad or take a photo on your phone? Like, Kids are smart. And so not using state-of-the-art technology to think about how to keep the system fair, I think, is the first challenge that the big testing codes are going to need to take on and certainly that we've chosen to take on for the start. That, to me, seems like the easy solution. But what about the entrenched industry, the $10 billion industry that has been built around the whole testing services? Yeah. So, you know, I, I think that there's two pieces to that. One is the test prep industry, which is in the game of giving people an advantage. And I think that also falls on the responsibility of testing providers. Make your test hard to game. Mm-hmm. It's very hard. I'm not saying, I'm not minimizing yeah. the, the feat of doing that, but we've got to be building with this mindset that what people enter with is already a substantial understanding of what's going to be on a test. And to the SAT's credit, I can't speak as much for the ACT, but for the SAT, there have been a number of studies that show even if you do a bunch of test prep, maybe your score goes up 100 points, but it's usually not so much more than that. There are fluke stories, but in general, it's not that gameable, and that's why you can take the test 12 times. So the standardized testing companies have already done a lot to work on that front. I think the other side of the industry around college admissions testing is driven by demand of what the colleges want. And because our system has seen this this path to American success as high school, then college, then work, the colleges have a lot of sway in determining mm-hmm. what college ready means. Right. And I think it's on employers to help say, okay, great that someone's college ready, but hey, there's a wide range of college quality. To your point, some of them leave people in debt with mm-hmm. photography degrees that convert to nothing, and others leave them you know, at, at Harvard with a philosophy degree that starts at $80,000 a year salary when they take a job somewhere. 
this individual a game changer. Rebecca Cantor, founder of Embellis, uh, really looking to shake up uh, the educational testing scene. She is on our Bloomberg Business Week Extra podcast this weekend. We'll put it out a little bit later on. You can also read it uh, on the ma- in the magazine a little bit later on. It's the cover story. It's also on the Bloomberg and at Bloomberg.com. I was blown away God, by her. Impressive. Incredibly timely, given everything we've been talking about related to higher education over the last couple of weeks with this big scandal. She's trying to make it fair, equal. She's trying to change the world is what she's doing. Pretty impressive. This is Bloomberg Business Week. All right. We do wonder whether or not he can be saved. I, I got to say that this uh, next story stunning and not in a good way. The SEC saying it's stunning that Elon Musk did not seek pre-approval of any of his tweets about Tesla in the months since he was ordered by a judge to do exactly just that. Dana Hall is technology reporter um, following the zigs and zags of Elon Musk and Tesla here at Bloomberg News. She joins us on the phone from our San Francisco bureau. So what gives, Dana? Yeah, so this long-running legal battle with the SEC just has so many twists and turns, and I'm probably not the only one who's sort of like constantly refreshing the docket <laughs> to see what the to see what the latest is. But basically, you know, um, the, the SEC has sought to file to, to hold Musk in contempt of court for violating the original order that uh, he agreed to in October, and they argue that he's continued to tweet about the company and has not gotten pre-approval for the tweets. And basically, in the filing yesterday. Yesterday, they just sort of urged the judge to find him in contempt and said that it's stunning that, you know, none of these tweets are getting pre-approved. I mean, Tesla does have a quote-unquote Twitter sitter who is kind of checking on the tweets, but not before they're going out. And why? I mean, like, like it feels like the SEC – this is one of these things where a parent says to a child, like, we were very clear. We told you exactly what we expected of you, and then you did – kind of the opposite or you utterly disregarded what's the explanation well musk and his attorneys sort of feel like you know they have a strong case that um that that you know they're sort of parsing around what is material information that sometimes elon tweets things that were already mentioned on conference calls or in earnings reports so it's really been this back and forth and now what's going to happen is it's really up to judge it's really up to judge nathan to decide how she wants to handle this and you know some people feel like the sec is really playing hard here and that the judge will side with the sec others sort of feel like the SEC has overstepped its bounds and it, it's really, you know, and the judge c- kind of has the discretion to kind of make a call. But it's it's been this sort of ongoing thing that just never seems to end. Right. So there's breaking, breaking the law or not listening to what the nation's top securities regulator says. And there's also then pushback from investors, shareholders, your board. Where are they on all of this when it comes to Elon Musk? Well, I think that the that the you know the the board so far has stuck by Elon. I mean, remember that the board is made up of you know his right. close friends, his brother. Um, there are two new independent directors, but it's still a board that is widely seen as being very close to Elon, both personally and professionally. Um, shareholders, I mean, I think that the the SEC lawsuit is kind of an overhang on the stock. Um, 
you know, the big question for the company is all about first quarter delivery figures. But yeah, I mean, it's not, it's just, it's it's sort of a, a distraction. And, and, you know, I mean, everyone was very happy when, uh, when Musk and the SEC settled in the fall, the fact that the SEC is now, you know, basically trying to find him in contempt of the settlement and that there's been a, you know, constant kind of back and forth with, with, with increasingly aggressive kind of filings on both sides. Um, I think people, you know, I would imagine that shareholders would like some kind of resolution. And so since we have you, Dana, we have to ask, you know, like, what's the latest from an investor's perspective on where this company is? And, you know, far better than we do. This is the most it feels like binary stock on the planet. You know, I mean, we talk to people all day long, I feel like, who are either, you know, Elon Musk is Jesus, Elon Musk is the devil (laughs) and, and, you know, and almost nowhere uh, in between. Who's winning out at this moment? You know, I don't think I don't think anyone is really winning. I mean, um, you, you know, the, 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 what's interesting about the company is that they they've had a sort of crazy couple of weeks where they um, announced that they were finally making the thirty five thousand dollar Model Three, but that they had managed to get to that price point by closing a bunch of stores, and right. that that sort of took the sales team by surprise. A week later, they announced that they were going to keep the stores open, but in order to keep the stores open, they had to raise the prices again by 3%. Then they, so then they said, order your cars now because prices are going up on March 18th. Then they, now today, Tesla is tweeting that due to overwhelming demand, you know, they couldn't process all the orders, so you can now order through Wednesday. So just the fact that like there's this kind of constantly moving uh, messaging around price has lead, led a lot of people to speculate that they have a demand problem or that it's going to be just a really tough quarter and um, so it'll be interesting to see where we where the consensus finally lands but ultimately you know Tesla is in the business of making and selling cars right. uh, they have clearly clearly you know kind of ironed out most of their manufacturing problems but is there a demand problem I mean you're starting to see a little bit of a downturn in the auto industry economy overall I'm sure that's bleeding into Tesla somewhat especially since the full tax credit is no longer available hey just got 20 seconds left here Dana I'm just curious the SEC has got to be thinking about other companies who are watching and if i mean tesla totally disregards an sec you know mandate (laughs) gotta wonder about repercussions here just quickly yeah, I mean, I mean, it's, it's sort of uncharted territory. Like, what other CEO is in, in a battle with the SEC over when and how he yeah. tweets? Right, but you wonder if, yeah, an SEC, uh, CEO might interpret it in a different way. Um, Dana, thank you so much. Dana Hall, always uh, giving us the latest and greatest when it comes to Elon Musk and Tesla. She's our technology reporter at Bloomberg News. Check her out on Twitter at Dana Hall. I'm driving in my car. I'll turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please. I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. And it is time for the drive to the close. Andrew Slimman, he is managing director and senior portfolio manager for Morgan Stanley Investment Management in Chicago. That's where he joins us on the phone. Andrew, great to catch up with you, especially as we're trying to make sense of a market that feels like it's trying to make sense of itself and not to make it too circular. Um, But what do you see driving the trade the last couple days? 
Yeah, well, thanks for having me on. Look, I, I think the market's tired. It's had a heck of a run. We're coming into the end of the quarter. Uh, the buyback window for corporations closed, so a big buyer of stocks is, is, is not going to be involved. And it looks to me like the market is searching for excuses to kind of to be a little weaker here. And I think that's why the market's down today. And I wouldn't be surprised if this continues for a while because uh, uh, I think there's buyer exhaustion. That's interesting. You're right, because the market has really been on a fairly steady move to the upside. Um, Buyer exhaustion. (laughs) So, in other words, nothing fundamentally has changed in your view? Correct. Um, I don't think anything's changed fundamentally. Uh, it's just that you get, uh, you know, news, you know, it came out earlier today, maybe the China discussions are taking longer. It's an excuse to sell because uh, we've, you know, we've sucked a lot of people back into the market, uh, many of which liquidated in December. Now they're, they're, they're back in. And I think it's important to consider that the number one buyer of stocks is corporate buybacks. And a lot of these companies are now in the blackout window, and so they can't be buying back their stocks. So they're out. Uh, you have these automatic institutional rebalancing, uh, uh, and given the extent of the outperformance of equities over bonds, I think they'll be selling uh, equities into the end of the quarter. Um, and we've had a very good quarter, so it doesn't take much for the market to kind of sell off into those type it, it, with that type of uh, setup into the end of the quarter. Andrew, we spent a lot of last week uh, looking up at our screen here at the UK Parliament, seeing all the back and forth, trying to make sense a little bit of all the, uh, you know, the ebbs and flows, as it were. And, and this is something that's been ebbing and flowing now for two years, uh, almost three, I guess. We're getting toward uh toward that point. Uh, what do you make of Brexit as an investor, and how should people be thinking about that in the short and midterm, given what we know and don't know at this point? Great, great, great question. And I think there's a very powerful lesson in what's going on, which is I've been hearing for the last few years that you know Europe is cheaper, uh, stocks in Europe are cheaper than in the United States, and therefore they're a buy. Well, the problem with cheapness is cheapness only works if there is a catalyst. You need a catalyst for that, for those stocks to start moving. Now, in the last month, Europe has outperformed the U.S. significantly. And what is the big change? Because Europe was, did not do, it did, it did a lot worse than the U.S. last year. What is the change? Well, there's a, there's a great little saying that I, I just love to tell people, which is the stock market stops worrying when politicians start worrying. And by that, think about the U.S. The U.S. market stopped going down when the Federal Reserve pivoted policy in January. China uh, market stopped going down the end of last year when they started stimulating their economy. Well, the reason I think that Europe is finally starting to recover is politicians are starting to worry about Brexit. The British pound hit an eight-month high uh, because it looks like, at the very least, we won't have a hard Brexit. So this is why Europe is starting to outperform. It's outperforming again today. Well, is it t- and I think... Well, I think it's coming at a time 
when investors, global investors, right. are very underway in Europe. In fact, when I go around and I talk about markets, people get very, uh, you know, <laughs> very emotional uh, against uh, Europe because it's not been a very successful investment. So I think the point is, is a lot of people are underinvested in Europe. At a time, and and the positioning for what is owned in Europe are very defensive stocks. At a time when politicians are starting to get nervous, and that generally is a good setup for equities to do better. So, in terms of the U.S. market, then would you just completely shift your um, investing strategy to Europe? Well, you know, I run global. Strategies are. I'm not going to yeah. completely shift, but I do wonder whether this causes a little bit of money to flow from the U.S., which has done very well, uh, into Europe, which has been a lagger, but is starting to pick up. Yeah, I think there could be some flow that way. Now, I'm certainly uh, in the camp that believes that the U.S. is tired, but I also think it's going to be a, a, a better year by year than we're seeing so far. So I'm not. I'm not trying to put a stake in the ground, say the, the rally in the U.S. is over. But on the margin, I think money could, could, could flow to Europe because it's picking up and there's a catalyst uh, for, for the, the cheapness to become attractive. So, Andrew, before we let you go, got to ask you, if you're sitting in the room tomorrow as Jay Powell addresses the throngs of journalists who want to know what he's doing next, what's your question? Uh, please, <laughs> I think I'd have more statements. Just stay where you are. Don't, don't change your, you know, don't change how you, uh, wh- what you've said in recent interviews, because clearly he's become much more um, cautious in his tone about, how, you know, speaking. Uh, he's learned his lesson, right? Coming off exactly. of uh, December. <laughs> That's exactly right. So. All right, Andrew. Um, but Simon. I do, think, I do think the risk is, is that it, now the Fed's pivoted dovish and anything they say, Will they be as dovish? I suspect so, but I think that's a risk. We will all be watching, as I know you will be. Andrew Swimman, he is Managing Director, Senior Portfolio Manager for Morgan Stanley Investment Management out there in Chicago. That's where he joined us from. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.